Thanks, guys. Howdy, high point. How are you guys doing? Good. Um, I know it's February, and it seems as though winter never ends here in South Central Wisconsin, but in case you weren't depressed enough, we're going to do Ecclesiastes today. <laughs> so, um, if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ecclesiastes. If you don't have one, there's one in the P-Rack in front of you, and it's page 1035. 1035. While you're flipping there, let me just say, um, if you haven't taken Financial Peace University, that preview class next week is a really great idea to go to. Um, that class has really been a game changer for a lot of us in relationship to financial freedom. It's been wonderful. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes starts with the words meaningless, meaningless, and it has a reputation for joylessness and pessimism. Um, but I, what I want to argue today and next week is that it is the Bible's most comprehensive book on the question of meaning and happiness, especially to people who consider themselves cultural elites, educated, scientific, logical, rational, progressive, enlightened, Madisonian, whatever. As we get into this, I don't want to spend a bunch of time arguing that Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. He is. Um, there's a lot of people that speculate about who the teacher, because it never actually says, I, Solomon. It just says, the teacher. But it says it's the son of David, who's king, who reigns in Jerusalem over all Israel. And that he was greater than anyone in Jerusalem before him. There's just a lot of clues. It's Solomon, and so I'm just going to go say, say, it's Solomon. And um, there's a few people who have argued that because there's some passages in Ecclesiastes that are cynical towards government— that therefore it couldn't be a king, which is a little ridiculous. I mean, how self-absorbed would you have to be to be in government your whole life and not have anything cynical to say about government? Right? You certainly can't write a wisdom book, you know? So, but you might be asking, okay, well, Nick, if this is about, like, wisdom and the meaninglessness of life and all this kind of stuff, why is it—did you select it for the gospel in the—through the Bible series? I mean, this series is supposed to be all about Jesus on every page of the Bible, the gospel in the Bible. Why would you pick Ecclesiastes— because that doesn't sound very good. Um, well, that's—I I picked it just because that's how most people feel about it. And first, because one of the things um, Ecclesiastes does really well is it exposes all the other fake possible answers. Whether they're what the Bible might call worldliness, that is, something in life that just is fabulous, or, more importantly, what this book calls wisdom or the application of all wisdom. That is, the desire to believe that through wisdom, logic, science, philosophy, intellectual equipment, we can understand what everything means. And when we understand what everything means, we will have this consilience of knowledge which will create an overall meaning that will make everything okay and solve the human condition and will no longer be anxious, desperate, angry, frustrated. And what Solomon says is, no, it doesn't. And in our culture, where we are right now, that is the most common false god. And this book is all about the fact that all that stuff is actually wonderful. Wisdom, reason, logic, science, sociology, psychology, learning, doing, all that stuff's wonderful, but it is absolutely futile in beating chance and death and it cannot solve the predicament of the human condition, which I'll talk about what that is in a few minutes. You just can't do it. And the other thing is, 
that the gospel is in this book, the gospel of faith and repentance, believing you're wrong and trusting in God, but it's spoken in entirely secular language, which actually makes it wonderful. Because you might be like, well, where's justification and faith and repentance and Jesus and all that stuff? All those good religious words are not in the Ecclesiastes at all. And that's my, my response is yes, and that's what's great. Because A, that's how you have to talk about the gospel out there. And Solomon's, Solomon wasn't writing necessarily all to like this normal religious people. He was writing to the elites in his own court, to the other people in government that he interacted with. He was, he was probably writing to people who considered themselves very above the dumb religion of the masses. We're, we're these really smart people up here, and we don't believe in all that religious claptrap. And so he wrote essentially a secular-languaged gospel to intellectuals who believe they've got another God in what he calls the application of wisdom, that is, or the coming together of all things intellectual to explain what everything means. Now, I want to talk about three things out of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do the first two this morning. I'm going to do the third next time. The third is the best part, so you just got to come back next week, and it'll be great. Okay, so but before that, let's read part of the book to get it in context. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, I'm going to read 9 to 14 or 15. Okay? So here's how the book starts. And make no mistake, this is the thesis statement of the book. Okay? The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water, reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my household. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. And a harem as well The delights of the heart of man I became greater by far Than anyone in Jerusalem before me In all this, my wisdom stayed with me I denied myself nothing my eyes desired I refused my heart no pleasure My heart took delight in all my work And this was the reward for all my labor Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done And what I had toiled to achieve Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what's already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. 
In days to come, they will both be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of this is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Excursus, his son Rehoboam was an idiot and lost the whole kingdom in less than a year. Verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, you would expect, is meaningless, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. An interesting way to refer to that action of God. Skip ahead to 3 verse 9. So there's the poem from the 60s that they copied back into this book. And I'm just kidding. And then verse 9, after that poem, the poem basically says, everything has its own season and time. You can't change any of it. It is what it is. Then verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Now that is a very interesting set of teachings. So one of the first questions you have to ask as you begin to read this whole book is, in what way is reality meaningless? Right? There's this word that keeps recurring, meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. The, his thesis statement at the beginning of the book is really plain, right? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The New International Version and the New Living Translation use the word meaningless. The English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard Version use the second. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which is much clearer, Right? One of the reasons why this is difficult is because, as the literature majors will tell us, translation is treason, right? The, the problem is, is that especially in works of literature where a single word is used over and over again, oftentimes it's being used with different devices and means slightly different things, but the use of the same word brings literary unity to the whole and all that kind of stuff. And that's exactly what's happening here. In different places throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, this word— means slightly different things based on the context. The word, the Hebrew word, really is just the Hebrew word for vapor or breath or mist. Everything is 
a breath. Everything's a vapor, a mist, right? Which, I mean, what are the, what are the main properties of a, exhaling, right? It's momentary. How many times have you exhaled today? A number of times, right? And it's, it's insubstantial, right? Like you can hold your hand up and you can go, and it's not hard to keep your hand there, right? It doesn't push very hard. Just try really hard to blow your hand down. Right? Even with spit, it doesn't work. It's insubstantial, and it's transitory. Very transitory. And you see, that's what, that's what Solomon— that's Solomon's main metaphor. Sometimes it means—but it never actually literally means meaningless, right? It, because obviously he's saying words. He believes the sentences signify something. It's not literally without any logical meaning. What it means is, it's absurd. It's transitory. It doesn't last. It—you cannot use it to ground ultimate meaning. Because it either doesn't last, or it doesn't make sense to us. And therefore, consilience, the singularity of all knowledge, bringing it all together, understanding everything, and therefore defining everything, isn't possible. And therefore, the number one god of the cultural elite is a false god. That's the argument of the whole book. Now, one of the questions that you can say, though, is, I mean, is this— only an elite issue. Is this like this? Philosophers should read Ecclesiastes. No, everybody should read Ecclesiastes because here's why. This is also the problem of the worker, the homemaker, the everybody. The difference is they say it different because they know it differently. See, the philosopher is trained to say things out loud and be able to feel something and then try to put it into words, right? Be like, here's what I'm feeling. I can— Create a syntax for it, right? Everybody else just sort of knows they think it intuitionally, and it's still perfectly valid to them. So, for example, the philosopher might say, all is vanity, a breath, a vapor. Humanity is meaningless, right? And the worker or the homemaker would say it like this, I'm bored and unhappy and feel anxious and desperate about it. This is the philosophical reality. This is the feeling produced in all humans by that intuition. The reason why it's for everybody isn't because everybody's going to have their philosophical crisis moment at some point. They are. But just because you can't articulate a philosophy doesn't mean the philosophy isn't working you. You could say it this way. The philosophical problem of impermanence and repetition creates the emotional problem of boredom, unhappiness, and even hatred. Is hatred, is that going too far? Right? Now you could be like, okay, wait. I don't really feel that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And you, you just, you, and you don't feel it every second. And sometimes it's intermittent. But everybody feels it because it's universally human. And here's why. So here's from chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. All streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the stream comes from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. It's a pretty—you know what that means, right? And now listen to this next sentence. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor its ear, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Do you see how those go together? They kind of don't. They go the opposite direction. So think about it this way, if you will. All of life is repetition, Right? Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book on it. It was cleverly entitled, 
repetition. Um, because the crisis of humanity is that we do everything over and 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 over again. Right? We breathe over and over again. Our hearts keep beating. We do the dishes. Of course, if you're a college student, once a month. If you're, you know, living a family every day, we go through the same patterns. We shower, we dress, we eat, we relieve ourselves. We, we just, we do things in these cycles, and they go, they happen over and over again, and they never stop, and that's what makes up the vast majority of life. The rivers flow to the sea, the sea's never full, and the streams never stop. Right? And yet, and that's wearisome. You see, that's the logic. It's wearisome to us. It's like, I gotta do this again? I gotta take the trash out again? I have to listen to my wife again? I have to parent this kid again? And it's the same lesson! I've got to do it again? We've got to go through winter again? I've got to start plants again? I've got to grow these flowers again? I've got to mow my lawn again? I've got to have this fight about money again versus savings and vacation? We've got to do this again? We've got to go to church again? It's wearisome, right? We've got to watch the Packers get to the playoffs and lose the first round again? Right? We gotta watch the Detroit Lions not make the playoffs again. It's just over and over and over, and it's wearisome. And the young don't feel it yet. It takes a little while. The young like to play with philosophy, like, oh, it's all meaningless. Let's go have some fun. But there's some point where you have, like, for me, you have four kids, and you're like, oh my gosh, we've got to do bedtime again? Seriously? Like, Helena's gonna wake up again at five o'clock. Again. Right? There's this point where you're kind of like, oh my gosh, like, this is just, this is killing me. This is it. This is all there is. It's just over and over and over again. That's all that's ever gonna happen. Right? This is why we watch TV. Right? Because we just, we think something new is gonna happen. Well, you know, it's a new episode. Right? Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where they— <clears throat> where they take like a new TV show and they show how it makes exactly all the same jokes and exactly the same words with exactly the same delivery as another show that's already happened. So there's one on, there's one on The Simpsons and Family Guy. And it's like, it's so funny. It's like Homer Simpson says something. The exact same sentence is in Family Guy. The exact same sentence. And it's hilarious both times. And they're nine years apart and so nobody knows. Right? Somebody did one with the sitcom Friends from the 90s and Scrubs. Same lines, same jokes, except Monica says it in this one and, you know, JD says it in this one. It's exact same. And you're kind of like, you're—look, you're listen, we watch TV. We're watching the exact same shows over and over and over. It's just a new 25-year-old in a new blouse. That's it. With a different gun this season. And it's just, it's the same storyline, same story, same everything. And we, but we, we take it in because it, there's something about it that brings the illusion of newness, difference, change, novelty, something that gets us out of the spinning cycle, right? And yet, the fr- next line says this. But you know what? We're wearied by this constant repetition, but you know what? We still never get tired of it. We want it to go on forever. And that's the contradiction. 
The contradiction is that we're, we're tired of life and we can't bear that it would ever end. The eye never gets full of seeing. The ear never gets full of hearing. We never actually want to quit, but the whole thing tires us the heck out. <clears throat> Look at it in verse, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I've seen, okay, this is kind of like the thesis statement of the whole book here in chapter 3 to 10. This is, this is his, con- the thesis statement of what's wrong is in chapter 1, verse 2. The thesis statement of what the answer is, is in chapter 3, verses 9 to 14. And he says this, I've seen the burden God has put on men. So he's saying, listen, I think I understand the problem. He's made everything beautiful in its time. That is, he has made a good creation that is temporary. Right? Nobody looks better than on their wedding day. It's all downhill from there. Right? He's made everything beautiful in its time. There is a time in which all things have a certain life to them. And the, but, but none of it lasts. And then yet, it says, but, but he has also set eternity in the hearts of men. That is all people, right? That there's something about the hearts of people that God has put in us a desire for forever. So he's created a world in which he makes everything temporarily beautiful. And then he puts in people's heart a desire that things would endure. Doesn't sound very nice, does it? And then he says, yet they, that is the people, cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So not only does he say it's transient and yet we want it to last forever, he, said, he doesn't just say not only does God not make it work, he says God doesn't even reveal how it works. So we're left with this intractable human problem, and not only does, do we not, are we not able to solve it, but we don't even know what it means. That's much worse. See, there's some things that you can't change, but if you feel like you understand them, you can deal with them. There's a certain amount of peace that comes from understanding. If you're like, well, I can't change that, but that's the way it's going to be. I kind of understand how it works, and okay, I think I can deal with that. There's a certain amount of peace that comes from that knowledge. You've got it figured out. You can't change it, but you've got it figured out, so you're okay. What this passage is saying is this. There's an intractable problem within the human experience of all things. And God has intentionally formed it so it is impossible not only to change it, you can't even understand it. Right? That's very interesting. Now, the reason why this is so important is that if you don't understand it, and if we don't ultimately deal with it, then it does something to us that it's very hard to undo. Ultimately, it catches up with us. So the way, the way this comes out in chapter 2 is that he talks about all the things he's done. So basically, he, he lives like a profligate, like a, he lives like a, first, like a first child and a second child, right? Right? He lives like the person who does everything right and the one who does everything they want, right? So the first verses in chapter 2 are, I, I went out with girls, and I drank some wine, and I did some drugs, and I did some stuff, and I did everything I thought would make me happy, right? And he's like, and he, you know, he's like, and even, even laughter after a while I was like, this is really silly, isn't it? Like, we're laughing, but it's, it's kind of dumb, right? And then he goes, well, now I'm going to achieve something, right? So he's like, I built houses, and I planted reservoirs, and there were these vineyards, and, I got, and at the end he's like, and I got lots of women, right? 
The Bible says 700 wives and 300 concubines. So that's a lot of women, right? All the delights of the heart of man, right? Sounds very delightful. And, um, and then he goes, in all the stuff that he did, he says this, I denied myself nothing, my eyes, desi- my eyes desired, I refused my heart no pleasure, my heart took delight in all my works, and this was the reward of all my labor, period, not colon. You see, it could be, and this was the reward for all my, my labor. When I looked at it, that's not what it means. The reward for all my labor was that when I looked at it, I found it was meaningless. It was terrible. My reward was, ugh. No. The reward was that he actually took delight in it when he was doing the work itself. When he was actually enjoying himself and when he was actually building stuff and doing things, that actually was enjoyable. He, his heart took delight in it. He loved living. It was when he thought about what it all meant that it all turned sour. When he decided he had to know what it all meant, and when he couldn't answer the question of what it all meant, through philosophy, reason, psychology, science, logic, when there was no way to empirically put it all together into a singular consilience of knowledge to really understand it, when that broke down for him, it all turned sour. And do you know what he says then? The result of it was emotionally? So I hated life, and I hated everything I toiled for. He had his life. He had everything he'd acquired. He just hated it. Verse 20, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. And then for some verses later, he talks about the anxiety that's always on a person like that. You see, you can say that you're not a philosophical person, but, the, but this philosophy will still work you. It'll just do it emotionally. It'll be an unnamed anxiety, an untold fear, a sense of desperation, a, a feeling of helplessness, an inability to be perpetually happy within the real life that you've actually got. You're having the same philosophical crisis as Nietzsche. You're just not being as articulate. Or inflammatory, I should probably say. He was a German, right? Okay. Let's keep going. <clears throat> when you come to that same recognition Solomon did, there's only really three ways to go on this bad boy, Right? The first is cynicism. You can say, I can't figure out what it all means, therefore, it doesn't all mean something. And so therefore, whatever, we're just going to make up our own meaning or do what we want or whatever, right? Or hedonism, it doesn't mean anything, so let's do whatever. So cynicism is, it doesn't mean anything, so let's think whatever. Hedonism is, it doesn't mean anything, so let's do whatever. They often go together, (laughs) right? Or it's, I can't figure out what it means and I'm probably not going to. But I actually, I still believe that there is a God of that that does know the answer, and I can trust him. And so through trust, I can solve the problem that I can't solve through logic, or what he calls here wisdom. That is not, not any individual point of wisdom. One of the things that's confusing about the book of Ecclesiastes is he talks about particular points of wisdom, but then in another context, he talks about wisdom as a complete theory of everything. He is not cynical about wisdom as points of knowledge. He's, he's cynical about that you can come up with a consilience of wisdom, a single theory of everything. That, he says, is impossible. Does that make sense? And so when he thinks about that, he's like, he's like I'm not going to be able to figure this out. It can't be done, actually. But 
that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. Because God hasn't given me access to a particular answer that I want doesn't mean that God does not exist and what he said isn't true. And if you think about how faith kind of functions, it kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? If I ask my daughter to do something, and she says, why, daddy? And I explain it. And she decides to do it. Is that faith? Well, there's no way to know. It could be either one, right? Because now we don't know why she made the decision, right? She may have done it because she liked my reasoning. She adopted it for herself and therefore chose to do the action, right? That would not be faith. Or she could hear my thing. It still doesn't really make sense to her, but I told her to do it, so she does it. That's faith, right? Either one. So the point here is, if Solomon could have applied wisdom to the world of God, and it all made sense to him, and then so he did what he thought he should on the basis of the whole world making sense to him, is that faith? Well, there's no way to know. (laughs) It's just—it might be faith, but it might not be. There's no way to know. But if he looks at the problem itself and he simply cannot come up with the explanation— But God has revealed something, not on the basis of science, logic, wisdom, or philosophy, but on the basis of revelation. Do this, don't do that. That is the Torah, the book of God that he has. And he goes, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to believe that there's a God beyond this wacky providence that I don't understand, who is good, true, right, and and good, and I I can trust it. That has to be faith. The other could be either one. That has to be faith. Which is also an interesting theodicy against the problem of suffering. Think about it this way. What he says is, the way God has worked providence, he did it intentionally so that you couldn't figure out exactly how God functions just by looking at the world empirically. Logically and philosophically speaking, you cannot construct the morality of God by looking at the empirical world, and that is intentional by God in order to humble human beings so that we'll revere God. That would mean that the world would have to, on some level, look like it was functioning on chance, and therefore would include suffering that is unexplainable, that God, in some, on some level philosophically, you feel like should have prevented— Does that make sense? Now, I can't make—I mean, obviously, that's narrowed down. You'd have to work that out a bit. But that's an interesting argument that I don't hear very often, but that he does make. Does that make sense? That's a bit of an excursus, isn't it? Let's move on. The second thing that comes through the book a lot is that he puts wisdom in its place. One of the things that's important to recognize, there—one of the things that we cannot afford as the church and that isn't true about Christianity is the idea that Christian faith is anti-intellectual. That Christianity in its most faithful form is anti-scientific, anti-philosophical, anti-reason, anti-whatever. We believe that all truth belongs to God. He created things just the way he wanted to, and everything that's true belongs to him, and therefore in that way belongs to us. Not exclusively. Lots of other people have access to it, but we're not afraid of it. One of the things that's a little bit confusing about Um, Ecclesiastes, and one of the reasons why people have a really hard time interpreting the logical flow of what he says about meaning, is that he gets gets going on something, and then he'll stop and go on this excursus about wisdom that he's perfectly— He's, he's per- being, being perfectly truthful about. See, there's, there's one interpretation of Ecclesiastes that this is Solomon after he lost his faith. And so basically, we should look at this book as this sort of old curmudgeonly atheist, and you shouldn't really—you can't really quote it directly. 
because if you quote it directly, you're actually quoting somebody who's talking against God, and it, it doesn't work that way. You've got to read it within the context of this person's railing against God, and you've got to be really careful what you do. Now, that actually is true about the first chapters of Job, <clears throat> which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. In the book of Job, he has friends that come and give these long discourses about why Job is suffering, and God says in the book that they're totally wrong. And so you can't just drop into Job chapter 24 in Elihu's epitaph of something and go pull a verse out and go, oh, that's true. <clears throat> because within that own book, God said it was wrong. Even though it's in God's inerrant word. You've got to still read it within its literary flow. <clears throat> but in Ecclesiastes, when Solomon gets off on these like wisdom excurses, he's totally sincere. Because though he believes that a complete unified knowledge, field of knowledge of wisdom that can solve all of our problems in our inner minds isn't available, he believes wisdom is awesome. He's wisdom guy. He's science guy. He's philosophy guy. He's reason guy. He loves that stuff. He's all over it. And one of the reasons why the book is confusing is because he, he cannot help but put in a bunch of wisdom within his somewhat wandering discursus on meaninglessness if you think that wisdom is God. Wisdom is an amazing tool. It's a terrible deity. Just like science. Science is a wonderful tool. It's one of those powerful tools we have as human beings. God said in Genesis, go out and figure out the earth and subdue it. It is the, it is the great commission of science, and it's on the first page of the Bible. Right? This means yes, this means no. I'm right about that. Okay? But— Science is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. Terrible for driving morality. Terrible for driving meaning. Terrible for telling us what we should do. It can tell us what we can do. It can give us some options for how to do it. It is terrible at telling us what it means and whether we should do it. Those questions not only aren't solved by science yet, science is the sort of thing that can never answer those questions. I don't have 45 minutes to argue for that. The point is, as you go through this book, there's—I'm I'm just going to go over six real fast because they're, they're pertinent to what we're going to talk about next time. But there's all these places where he's like, hey, here's something that's really wise. Let me talk about this for a minute. And then he goes, yeah, but it's meaningless in the end. It's a bad God, but it's totally true, Right? One of them, and this is very important, and this is what separates the Christian hedonist from the cynical hedonist, is that you have to—this is wisdom point number one—you have to accept the lot in life that God has given you. Now, before you get really cynical about that, be like, well, yeah, well, you're going to tell a woman who's getting beat by her husband to stay there? No. Just listen for a minute, okay? What, he, what this book is saying is that— the human condition is such that if you can't accept it, you will go crazy. You will implode your own life. You will never be happy. You'll be full of anxiety. You won't be able to live as a human the way a human is meant to live. You have to accept that you are a breath. You've got to accept that. You're going to die. Nobody's going to remember you. Your life is short. In terms of the expanse of the world, your life is super short. It's not going to be near as significant as you want. Everything that you do in your life, somebody's going to undo right after you die. And everything you actually accumulate and get ordered, some idiot probably is going to administrate it and destroy it in about three months. And your funeral isn't going to be that good. Because I'm going to be writing another sermon that week, and I'm going to put something together in 20 minutes, and 
hopefully your daughter's going to say something nice about you. That's reality. And your death is going to be untimely, and you're going to feel like your life was too short, and you're going to feel like people could have been nicer to you, and you're going to feel like there were these things that you could have done, but you didn't, and uh, you're going to have regrets, and you're going to have things you're glad about, and it's going to be this big mixture of failures and successes, and it's going to be this jumbled ball, and you're just, all you're going to be able to do at the end of your life is shrug. That was my go. And he's, and he's saying, if you can't accept that, you can never be happy. And here's the problem. We want to be gods. And God has actually put in us the desire to live forever. But not that way. And when reason, wisdom, or anything in the temporal world become our God, and we try to grab a hold of that thing so that it would deify us, it destroys the thing we grabbed, it destroys what we were meant to be, it takes one of the things God has put in us that is his image, and it twists it to attack something non-eternal, to suck eternal life out of, it destroys everything in human existence. But he says the moment a person can accept their toil, their work, their role, and the word he uses for this is their lot. God can give them happiness. The verses, nope, sorry. The verse is this, in, this is in chapter 5. Then I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. Do you see how he's intentionally using the most negative thing possible to commend it? I see that it is good and proper for man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of the life God has given him. You see, he leads in with these positive ideas, and he comes out with that God has given him, and then he makes the life itself sound as dreary and terrible as possible. Do you see that? That's a literary device we're supposed to pick up on, even if we went to public school. Okay? You go, oh— so you're—I'm supposed to look at it like it's this toilsome nonsense. And if I will accept that, I can eat and drink and find satisfaction, and God will give that, right? For this is his—that's you and me, the humans—lot. Pay attention to that word. Moreover, when God gives a man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them— See, it's important here. He's not just talking about poor people. He's not saying, listen, if you're poor and you're oppressed or whatever, if you just accept that about your life, then you can be happy. See, he doesn't want people to think that. He doesn't want you to think, well, us cultural elites, we have a totally different thing where we find our significance. But for poor people that are never going to be anything but blue-collar folks, you know, they should be happy with barbecuing brats and watching the bears. But for those of us who are larger beings than them, we can find our happiness in something else. That's not what he says. He says, he says there, moreover, right? Not just this, but moreover, when God gives any man or woman wealth and possessions. So if you're an elite, you're something, right? And enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and be happy in his work, this is the gift of God. He, that's both, seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. He doesn't have to think about his impending death. His impending death is—it's something you've accepted— and so you can, just, you can be self-forgetful about the ultimate meaning of something, and you can live in the moment, which is what God has actually asked us to do. C.S. Lewis says in um, 
the screw tape letters, it is not the future, but the present that is most like eternity. For in eternity, when sin is gone, we will all live in the eternal present. Neither in our past, nor in our supposed futures. One of the beauties of eternity is that we are always there, like the present. But he said what normally happens is that old women and scholars can be taught to spend their life in the past, and everybody else can be taught to live somewhat in the future, either being happy about a possible future or anxious about the way things can go wrong in every possible sense. What Lewis says there is the exact same thing Solomon says here. There is a present in which you can be happy, and God will give you happiness in it only if you accept it. The second is it's, it's the difference in human existence on the basis of a single letter. Most people expect others to make them happy. But what Solomon teaches, and all wise people who've talked about happiness I've ever read, say that, no, you have to take enjoyment in your life in its transience and toil. That is, you don't take happiness in your escapes from your life's transience and toil. You take happiness in your life's transience and toil. The addiction to leisure produces unhappiness, not happiness. The idea that I'm going to go on a hunting trip in the fall does not increase my happiness. If I think about it all year long, wishing I can do it, and walking over everything between now and then with my heart being put on that thing, which is never as good as I imagine it's going to be. Leisure, whether it's waiting for the weekend, waiting for the evening, waiting for retirement, waiting for the summer, waiting for whatever, only makes the heart sick. Unless leisure is something that happens in the transience and toil of your life. Because you're not worshiping what you're going to accomplish, you're able to slow down and have fun. Then leisure is wonderful. Because all it is is a brat and a wiffle ball game and some enjoyment. It doesn't have to be more than that. It doesn't have to make your life okay. It doesn't have to make your bad marriage okay. It doesn't have to make anything work. It just is what it is. And your heart can delight in it. But the minute it's more, it takes the weight of a god and it gets crushed into a thousand pieces. Right? You and I have to take enjoyment in our lives and we have to do it in the transience and toil of our lives. One of the things that you might think from the verses I've read is that a couple times Solomon goes, you know, it's good for people to enjoy their life. And it, it may very easily feel like that's some kind of throwaway line. Like, there's a couple places where he just goes, you know, you should just have a good time. And it, for a lot, some people actually read the book of Ecclesiastes, and they go, you see, Solomon in some ways is just a hedonist, right? He's a cynical hedonist. Nothing matters. And so just sleep with a lot of people and eat a lot of really good food and watch a lot of television and Go hiking or something. Like, just do whatever makes you happy. That's not what he says at all. In fact, he does this in a number of places. You can see this in the text. There's a, there's a text, and here's the problem that that's ultimately is meaningless. Futile. Vaporous, right? And then in all these cases, he talks about these things, and he goes, you know what? None of that makes sense. Not a dang bit of it makes sense. You can't, you can't bring it all together. But you can trust God. And you can take pleasure right now. Because you don't know. Listen, because here, here's one of, the, one of the discourses. is like, if I'm wise, I should live a long time, right? But wisdom can't beat chance and time. So I could die tomorrow. 
So what am I going to do? Flip out? He goes, no. Cook dinner. Talk to your wife. Eat supper. Hug your kids. And take pleasure in today. Because you're right. You don't know if there's going to be tomorrow. There's no reason to think you're going to have one. But if you're alive right now, you can take pleasure in your lot, toil, and work at this moment. It's the most fundamental human discipline of mind and heart. Is what he's arguing, basically. Okay. Okay. Third is wisdom, science, and skill are still relatively valuable. They cannot answer everything, and they can't beat chance and time. Those are two of the things that God has apparently, in his providence, allowed it to remain in human life, at least the way we see it, so that you can't sort it all out. Right? This goes back to that thing about suffering. For some reason, the way God has done providence is he has allowed things to work in such a way as they look like they go by chance, so that you can't sort it all out. If, it, if things didn't look like they went by chance, that would mean everything looked like it had a conjunction of meaning. Meaning flowed from A to B to C to D to E, and you could understand the world, and you can't. And it says in chapter 3 that God intentionally did it that way so that we would revere him and so that we would be humble at human beings because we wouldn't be able to get from A to Z. There'd be all these breaking points in the middle of it and be like, ah! But he's still all through the book talks about all these things that are wise, right? One of them, friendship and family protects and strengthens. Like, how does that fit in the overall argument of this book, right? But he says, let me tell you something that's meaningless, right? It's absurd. I saw this guy. He worked really hard. He had a really good life, and then it all fell apart, and because he didn't have any family. He didn't have anybody to help him. He didn't have any really close friends, and his whole life came apart, and it shouldn't have because he worked really hard and stuff. It's an absurdity, and then he goes, now, now as long as we're on this, let me just tell you, why, why just be one? Why not be two? You're stronger with two. People who have friends are blessed. When somebody lays down, they can't keep warm by themselves, but two people can keep warm, to get warm together. And a cord of three strands isn't easily broken, right? Nice wedding verses, right? But it's just, it's, it's just true, right? He's talking about something. He goes, listen, family and real deep friendships are incredibly important. Now think about that. How are real friendships and real families that are enormously wise to be strong, how are they built? Right? By taking pleasure in our lot in life. Right? Do you get to pick your family? No, you do not. So they are part of your lot, right? They are assigned to you. You see, a huge part of human success, happiness, peace, is dealing with what was assigned to you. Right? I'm never going to be—I'm never going to be 6'5". I'm, I'm not going to be able to fly, right? I'm never going to have a deep preacher's voice. It, you're always going to come and be like, now which Disney character does he sound like today? <laughs> right? That's just reality. I don't get to pick any of those things. I, I got to sort of pick my wife, but only from the women I met, right? I didn't get to pick my kids, right? I just got to pick— Something related to that. And there's—that's that's it, right? I mean, I don't get to pick—and you'd be like, well, you got to pick where to go to school. No, all, not really. Options for school are very limited. I didn't—because I didn't think broader than that. And both times I got hired by churches, it was the only one in America that would hire me. Literally. No, I think that's a joke. I applied to hundreds. I, I really wish that was a joke. 
But you see, friends and family are people you stick with. You take pleasure in their actual presence. You're with them when things are terrible. You deal with all their infirmities and weaknesses and difficulties. You're with them in sickness and in health. You stick with them. You're there. It's not sexy all the time. It's not leisure all the time. It's not vacation all the time. You're there. You're there. You're there. You're there. It's a lot like toil and work. But it's wise. Right? Wrong button. Five. Diversify your enterprising activities. Like, what does that, right? You're like, really? Yeah. Yeah, he's, I mean, and now think about this, how this relates to God's providence. Like, if he says, listen, God has determined providence in such a way as life really does look like it functions by chance in a lot of ways. There are times where, like, providence will break through and things, like, work out in these really weird ways you could have never planned, and you're like, oh my gosh, God really exists. But that's partly because most of the time it doesn't look like it goes that way. It looks like, like the wrong person gets cancer, and the wrong person gets hit by a car, and why did that kid get born that way, and what about this, and why do I have to do that, and how did this person turn out this way, and why am I married to an idiot, and how did this all happen, and why do I have to go to school, and why do you have to get a doctor to do this, and— Right? And you see, if you recognize that God has chosen to humble humanity— by making providence look like chance, and that that's the way life is, and that you have to trust God to take care of you, even when it doesn't—you can't put together how God is taking care of you, because you can't access that through wisdom. What you would do is you would act like God is going to take care of you, but you are going to play the world the way it is. Or to quote the cliche, trust God, but tie up your horse. Right? Trust God and be smart. Right? And so he actually says this. You're, you're like getting to the end. You're like, finally, the conclusion. And he goes to this total discurs- excursus about how to do business, right? This is what it says. He goes, and this first verse doesn't make sense to most people, and I understand that. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. You should quote that to somebody at work. To be like, There's this ancient Jewish proverb that says, cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. And they're going to be like, yeah, and it'll be soggy. <laughs> right? But just stick with the passage. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. You get that? Hide your stuff in a number of places, like spy advice, right? Put stuff in lots of different places because you don't know what's going to catch on fire, what army's going to attack, what's going to happen, and you're going to want stuff in multiple locations because you don't know where, when there's going to be a flood or, right? Be smart. Spread it out, right? Then he says this, If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where it falls, there will I. Which is an ancient Jewish way of saying, it is what it is. It is what it is, right? Verse 4, Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. What does that mean, right? You got all these seeds, it's windy, what's going to happen? You try to throw them on the ground, they get blown everywhere, right? So you're like, oh, it's too windy, I can't plant today. Well, guess what? There's always wind. If you go, well, I can't plant because it's windy, you're never going to plant, right? And if you're like, well, it's time to cut the wheat, but there's clouds, it could rain. I remember when I was a kid, we would cut hay. I grew up on a beef farm. And, you know, my dad would kind of, they could go outside, look at the weather report, look outside. Is it going to rain? Because you need it to be dry when you cut stuff, Right? So it all dries out and you can take it in. And so you go outside and you're like, oh, there's clouds today. Well, guess what? Funny thing about the atmosphere. There's clouds every day. 
And so you better just cut. If it's harvest time, you better just cut it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you need to get out there and be enterprising. You need to work. You need to toil. You need to pick a lot. You need to stick with it. You need to go for it. But you gotta—I mean, you, you cannot expect things to come to you. You need to get out there and you need to do it. And there's always going to be something against you, and you may work hard, and guess what? It may blow your seeds away, and you may cut your wheat, and it might rain. And that doesn't mean God doesn't exist. That's just the way the world is, because you know what? When a tree falls down, there it is. Right? And then he says, sow your seed in the morning, and at evening do not let your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. That's a biblical doctrine of diversifying your investments. Right? He's saying, listen, you go out and you plant your seeds when it's daytime, and then at night, don't just sit around and be like, well, I planted my seeds. Go home and weave something or like do something else. You know, make, make canned jellies and sell them because you don't know when the market's going to fall out of fabric and you don't know when the hail's going to come and destroy your crops. You don't know what's going to happen. And so you better do more than one thing because you don't know what's going to happen. And you better be ready. Why? Because you can't put together God's providence. A, B, C, D, E. I'm going to take care of everything no matter what you do. It's all going to come to you because God is loving and nice. He's like, that's not the way it works because God has determined providence to work like it looks like chance to humble humanity. And because he's done that, you have to act like things function on chance, i.e. be smart and trust God. Because without him, you can't beat chance in time anyway. And then the last one, and we're going to end here, is you better remember and stand in awe of God. Don't think you're so smart. Chapter, and he's talking about religious people here. He's not talking about secular people. He says people go to the temple and they talk and they, they give sacrifices and they're like, yeah, here's my sacrifice. I'm pretty awesome. He's like, you know what? Shut your mouth. God is in heaven. You're on earth. You can't see him. You need to figure out who the heck you're really talking to because you're not talking to your little buddy. And he, he says, let your words be few. <laughs> and only fools talk at God a lot. You might talk to God a lot, that is, many times. But he's like, don't just blabber at him. You can tell him how you're feeling. Use a lot of words for that. But when you actually say, well, God, would you do this? Or when you actually talk at God, don't be silly. <laughs> Recognize what reality is. And talk to him like he's God, like you are in awe of him. Right? In 5 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. Or chapter 8, he says, Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with the God fearing men who are reverent before God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, When I look at the world with wisdom, that is, when I look at the world empirically, should I stand in awe of God? No. Because what I see is wicked people. Thoroughly wicked people living just as long as righteous people. And I see righteous people having all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. And so if I just looked at the empirical world, I would not stand in awe of God. I'd be—might be as wicked as them. I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably be partly wise and partly wicked. Whatever I thought would produce the best outcome for me. He said, but I know—and this is not the empirical no. This is the faith no. But I know that things will go better with God-fearing men those that are reverent before God. He says, what wisdom has actually determined for him is actually 
not just that wisdom isn't the final answer, but that there is a final answer beyond wisdom, and it is God. Now, I'm going to talk about that next week, okay? But here's the very narrowed summary of how you could talk about that. Solomon, God made him the most secularly wise person of his age, at least. But when Jesus showed up, he said, one greater than Solomon is here. That is, Solomon was maximally human wise, humanly wise, but that's actually not enough. In terms of wisdom, he was great. But there is a greater greatness that we require to put us at ease with the actual condition we're in so that we can accept our lot, so that we can take pleasure in the repetitions and toil of our life, so that we can take wisdom in, we can drink it in as deeply as we possibly can and yet not make it a God or a Savior. So that we can live in a world like it's chance and be smart and yet still trust God and that not be opposites. But that actually come together for us in how we trust God. And we have to have something that actually in the midst of all that causes us to stand in awe of God. And there is one who has made that all work. There's one who is greater than Solomon. Not just wiser, but greater. Jesus. Every bit is wise, but greater on a whole other level because he demonstrated that the God who never works things out the way you think he should, like letting his son get crucified by wicked men, is often simply a handmaiden for a deeper hiddenness that you can never figure out on your own, but that he brings about to a better end. In, the, in that case, the end of offering you salvation. That strange providence of his own son being killed. So that Jesus himself would say, I have labored in vain. Same word. I have labored like a breath. Isaiah 49 from last week. Isn't that interesting? But what did he say at the end of that verse? But yet what is due me is with my God. He could accept that for what it was because he knew God was doing something. And you can accept the human condition. You can escape the creeping mold. You can ex escape the anxiety, the unhappiness, that brokenness, the, the churning of the heart, the desire, the weariness of life, and yet wanting it never to end, and the collision of those things that is raking apart the inside of your heart your whole life. That can be gone because there is one greater than Solomon that has come to bring it together. And Jesus, and it starts by trusting in him. But I'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would help us to recognize what, what's happening. I pray that everybody in this room, that we'd be able to read this book differently the rest of our lives. I pray that you would help us see how useful a thing, reason, thinking, logic, wisdom, philosophy, and science are, how, how great a tool they are, but how bad a God they are. And I pray that that idol would be wiped away and that we would look to the one who is greater than Solomon, that we would see Jesus for all that he is, and we would recognize that we can trust him without answers. And that through that, we could take in all the different answers of wisdom, even though we can't make them hook together. Recognizing that your providence is hidden that way, and it's meant to humble us, and it's meant to cause us to revere you. And we realize it will make us either revere you or hate you. 
And we pray that you would so work by your spirit that it would make us revere you and not hate you. Become our treasure, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.